Thankful for your good hand upon us in so many ways. Thankful for all the ways that you've blessed us. Father, we also, though, would repent of our sin as a nation, recognizing that there are so many ways that we have fallen short of your plan and of your word. Father, today it's with grateful hearts that we reach for our Bibles and we anticipate being strengthened and encouraged. We ask your Holy Spirit to work in us. Thank you for the work that your word does in us so so well. And I pray, Father, that we would just have humble hearts and ears to hear and clear minds to think as we consider your work among us. We commit ourselves, Lord, to the study of your word and, and then going and walking in obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have to tell you that um, the last few weeks, my mindset has been one of pondering and musing what is God doing in our country and, and thinking about a variety of, of topics and coming at it from a variety of angles in my musings. As Janet and I loaded up last Saturday with the young people and kind of took a step back in time to our youth pastor days and headed out uh, west to Indiana to the middle states there and where our young people were gathered. Uh, Mark and Cheris were pretty preoccupied still last Saturday, and it's great to see Cheris in the service this morning with their new little one, and we praise God for you and pray for you and thankful for you. Um, as we kind of pinched hit for them and looked forward to meeting with old friends at a conference that we had attended for many, many years before, it became very evident as we drove west that... Uh, that there were drought conditions in the Midwest. As we got to western Ohio and moved into Indiana, uh, the grass was brown and burnt, and the cornfields are shrunken and shriveled up, and uh, the soybeans are only a few inches high, and it became very evident that there was great need for water. Throughout the week, I've, um, I had a workstation in our room and was working much of the week, kept a close eye on Fox News, and watched with great interest in some... Uh, just uh, horror, for lack of a better word, the phenomenal pictures of the raging fire in Colorado and uh, just the tragedy of, of these homes that are burning. I think as of this morning, there's still 35,000 people evacuated out of Colorado Springs area, 347 homes burned. Um, I think they say only two people have been lost in the fire so far. But what a devastating thing. And you just uh, see that out-of-control fire. And then Friday afternoon, I stood outside the dorm there and the campus where we had gathered at Taylor University, a Christian college campus that the IFCA was renting for their conference for their young people. And, and out of nowhere, it seemed, this storm that we know now had originated somewhere in the northern Illinois-Chicago area, had swept across our country. It came sweeping through there, bringing with it refreshing rains for the next 12 hours there in Indiana at least. It was uh, much needed, but it was a hard way to get it. And, and we had young people up on the high ropes course, and we had young people in the lake swimming. It was afternoon recreation time, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this storm swept through, and everybody ran and scattered, and some of us um, leaders watched the sky and were listening and watching for tornadoes and so forth there in the Midwest. And it was very frightening. And you realize... Uh, this is kind of a bad storm here, and I don't want to overplay on it uh, at all. But as we've changed our topic, I thought, you know, this is an opportunity for us to think about some things uh, that maybe the Lord would have 
for us in Lessons in the Storm. And that's what I've entitled our message this morning, Lessons in the Storm. I invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel in chapter 4. And it's probably the most familiar storm story in all of the Bible. And I would like to challenge our hearts and minds this morning with five lessons that need to be learned in the storm. It seems that in the last few years we have regularly been experiencing major cataclysmic storms both around the world and in our country. And it seems almost in some kind of a layer-like fashion that we no sooner deal with some kind of a hurricane that devastates part of our coast that we then have an earthquake somewhere, we have drought or we have some major problem going down and you think, wow, it just seems like there's an acceleration of storms. What's happening? And we who study our Bibles, we wonder, is, are these signs of the last days? Is, is this God at work in the end times? And certainly our Bibles are filled with illustrations where God has used storms to impact people's lives. We think about Job and we think about Jonah and, and there are many stories. We're going to look at one this morning. We recognize, however, that uh, though there are a variety of kinds of storms in our lives, we sometimes face storms that have nothing to do with drought or have nothing to do with rain or wind. But there are difficult kinds of storms. And as I look at our church family, I not only feel like our country has experienced a variety of storms in the geophysical world, but we've experienced some uh, political storms. We have question marks about what's going on. As I look at our church, I think of people who have experienced personal storms, people who it seems like at an increasing pace, almost every week we have uh, the new story of someone in our ministry who's dealing with something very, very difficult, a storm in their life, in their life. The doctor looks at them and says, I'm very sorry to share this with you, but it's very serious what we're dealing with. It is indeed malignant. We must deal with this. It seems like we're hearing that a lot lately. A voicemail that's left that says, sorry, it just didn't work. I'm out of here. I don't love you anymore. A storm that just clobbers you out of nowhere. A boss that looks at you and says, uh, we need to meet. Really like your work, but it's just not working out. And another storm enters your life. You can identify the particular kinds of storms perhaps that you've had to deal with and, or are dealing with. And guess what? doesn't sound encouraging, but if you haven't had any of these kinds of storms, hold on, you will. And until we get to heaven and until we're in the presence of our Lord and all things are made right, we just live in a world where things happen in a way that they're not supposed to happen because of sin. And we do live in a sin-cursed world and the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. And so I thought, as I said, not to overplay the situation, but in light of having to make some last-minute changes, that perhaps it would be good for us to just remind ourselves that God is in control. I think that there are some ways that God is using storms to wake up America, at least to try. Proverbs says that it's the, the wealthy man, the strong man, considers his wealth a strong tower 
a, a high city wall that cannot break down. And here we see one devastating storm effect upon another, and we recognize that we're broke, and we don't financially have the means to deal with it, nor do we have the leadership with the integrity or the courage to deal with it adequately. And By God's grace, we still remain somewhat of a strong country, but you just get a funny feeling with the next storm, don't you? And so we need to recognize that um, in the storm, there are lots of good lessons to learn. And so I turn our attention to Mark's gospel in chapter 4. This is a story that is in the context of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps later today or this week in your devotional life, you would turn back to this page. You find a similar parallel passage in Luke's gospel in chapter 8 and Matthew's gospel in chapter 8. In Mark chapter 4, there is a sequence of events that happen essentially kind of a, a day in the life of Jesus It's probably about a 24-hour span. He has been very busy in ministry. This is following his Sermon on the Mount. Um, uh, He is now ministering. Mark leaves gaps in the timeline. Uh, So you'll notice that he comes out of his synopsis of the Sermon on the Mount and then goes right into these events. When you read other Gospels, there's more events in between. And when we get to this passage, there's a busy day in the life of our Lord. And... um, You will see here in juxtaposition, you'll see the humanity of our Lord Jesus and his deity. You'll see his humanity in his fatigue. You will see his deity in his omnipotence and his power over nature. I think it's interesting as these stories unfold, and we're only going to deal with the storm passage. Mark 4, chapter 4, verse 35, we see, and this is that familiar passage where Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and he's going to calm the sea with a word. The passage says then that the boat was immediately on the shore, and when they got to shore, this is the story at the beginning of Mark's Gospel in chapter 5, where they get out of the boat and they look up on the steep bank, and that's where the cemetery was with the crazy man at Gadaria, um, where um, Matthew's passage, I think, says there were two men there. He was evidently the worst of the two, and uh, he was filled with a legion of demons, perhaps Thousands of demons indwelt this man. And Jesus, with a word, expelled the demons into the swine. The swine go crazy, jump off the the cliff and drown in the sea. You know that story, I'm sure, if you've read your Bible at all. They move from there, get back in their boat, and go back across the corner of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, there, when they cross to the other side, it says in Mark 5.21, and so I take these, these events are just happening one after the other, a few hours apart, And they get there, and that's where one of the rulers of the synagogue, a man named Jairus, comes. And uh, he beseeches Jesus and begs Jesus to come heal his little daughter, a 12-year-old girl who is sick and dying. And that's where the crowds figured out that Jesus had come to shore. And so they came swarming around Jesus, wanting to see his good works. Can't blame him. I would love to have seen Jesus make a blind man see, make a lame man walk, make a crazy man sane. And the crowds pressed in on him, and that's where Jesus stopped, and that's where that precious story is of that pitiful woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. And she, in faith believing, reached out and touched Jesus' garment from behind, and he felt the power go out of him, and she was instantly healed. And then... By then, the servants of Jairus come and say, don't bother the master anymore. 
the little girl's dead. And Jesus said, let's go anyway. And they go to the house. And Jesus said, let me see her. She's only sleeping. And they laughed at Jesus. How would you like to have that on your record? <laughs> Laughing at Jesus. And he takes her by the hand. And he raises her off of the deathbed. They laughed at him because they knew a dead body when they saw one. And uh, Jesus raises the little girl from the dead. How great is that if you're the parents of a 12-year-old girl and you get her back? What a wonderful Lord Jesus we serve. Amen. And what, a, what an incredible three-year window of works. And what I like about that sequence of passages right there is, with a word, Jesus shows his power over the sea. And with a word, he shows his power over Satan. And with a word, he shows his power over sickness and death. And he shows himself that he is indeed in a category all his own. No Muhammad can compete with this Jesus. No Joseph Smith can compete with this Jesus. The Pope cannot compete with this Jesus. He is God in the flesh. Colossians chapter 3 said, All things were made by him and for him. He is the creator of the universe. He is almighty God in the flesh. Come to tell us that God loves us and out of his love and kindness he was willing to go to the cross to take our sin and give us his righteousness. That's something that no one else could do just like no one else could speak to the sea and calm it down with a word. And so there's lessons to learn. Let's read about lessons in the storm. We have five lessons that we want to uh, learn today and remind ourselves um, they're worth pondering, I think, and hopefully will encourage our hearts today. On that day, verse 35, Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. So we don't know exactly how many, but Jesus had been teaching. He has his disciples. Remember that these are men of the sea. Some of them are anyway. Peter, James, and John. They know fishing. They know boats. They either paid somebody a few cents for their boat ride across. It's not a long boat ride. It's not that huge of a body of water. Um, or they had boats that were still there on the shoreline. Or they had fishing buddies that they borrowed their boats so they get in the boats rather than walk all the way around the shoreline a couple of miles. And there it says, <clears throat> And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. Bible students tell us that even today on the Sea of Galilee, this is common. There's high ground around it. It's a lower level at the water. And that over those hills that the wind can really come whipping. And it can catch you by surprise. It's a little bit what happened Friday afternoon. I thought about that, how quickly it came. Didn't really expect it to be quite like that. I understand from news reports that this wind that started in Chicago and came through to D.C., somewhere 75 to 80 mile an hour ground speed, um, that it's left over 3 million people without electricity, that they're saying it is the, the largest impacting non-hurricane storm in history here in our country. That's interesting. It's like, you would think this would probably happen when you were a kid, you know? It was a pretty bad storm. You would think that these guys would totally understand these storms. They had fished there for all of their adult life until Jesus said, put down your nets, let's go fishing. But even this storm caught them by surprise. Experienced fishermen. And a great windstorm, verse 37, again arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. In Luke's passage, it says it was swamping. It was swamped. But he was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, verse 38, asleep on the cushion. It's a great picture, isn't it? And they woke him and they said, teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Interesting, isn't it? I think that um, our Lord Jesus knew a teachable moment when he had one. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that when Jesus got into the boat and though in his humanity he was fatigued, do you think that this storm caught Jesus by surprise? Do you think that Jesus was going to let the boat flip over and for the men to drown? Do you think that Jesus didn't know exactly what was going to happen? Of course he did. What a great moment. I would love to have been there. I've been in some fairly bad water a couple different times on the Yukon and in lakes in Michigan. It's scary. You're kind of worried. You're like, you know, I don't know about this. I'm getting very uncomfortable here. These guys were afraid unto death. Grown men, petrified, grown men who knew the water, shaking Jesus awake. What's going on here? We're going to die. Pay attention. That's how we feel in the storm, isn't it? Where are you, Lord? Are you sound asleep on me? What's going on? I'm going to die. Wake up. Pay attention. Five lessons that we learned from the story, and I think they're pretty evident and they're not difficult to grasp. I trust that they will be an encouragement to you. Five lessons best learned in the storm. Number one is a lesson about the power of God. It's a lesson about the power of God. Don't you see it? You got lightning. You've got wind, you've got rain. And we've often commented to one another, haven't we, when the wind gusts or when there's just incredible night lightning going on or an incredible thunderstorm. Don't you think about the power of God in the midst of the storm? Well, these disciples certainly had an example of the power of God in the midst of the storm. But what about the power to kind of wake up and look around and just say, Shalom. I was standing outside the dorm, as I referenced, at Taylor University when that storm swept through and the kids went running. Listen, I could scream at the top of my voice. The storm didn't care. But Jesus could just speak one quiet word, the power of God over the storm. It's interesting that Psalm 89 verse 9 says that he rules over the raging sea. He rules over the raging sea. Psalm 135 verse 7 says this. Psalm 135 7 says... He brings out the wind from his storehouses. He brings out the wind from his store. That's a great picture, isn't it? God's got big warehouses filled with shelves, and on the shelves are boxes full of wind. Let's pop the top on one of those. Let it go. Oh, put it back in the box, put it back on the shelf. I mean, it's a way for us to imagine God, I guess. God has storehouses filled with the wind. God can do whatever he wants. What an incredible picture of the power of God in the storm. If you felt that kind of power, you know that it brings us to our second point, and it's how the men felt in the story, and it is this, that one of the best ways to learn this lesson is in the midst of the storm, and it is the puniness of man. The puniness of man. It is, it is in the power of the storm that we gain perspective on our own puniness. We are helpless We can do nothing to stop the wind. We can do nothing to to keep the electric on of our own. But aren't we 
a people who are given to self-reliance. Don't we think we're a strong people? You recognize in about 45 minutes of storm that we really don't have much power. We really don't have much that we can do here. What if God had kept it on for four and a half hours the way he did for about a 15-minute window across the campus of Taylor University through Shenandoah Junction here that has just wreaked havoc down our road? What if that went for four and a half hours like that instead of 45 minutes? What if it went for 40 days and 40 nights? What if the fountains of the deep broke open? I have no problem imagining the devastation of Noah's flood, recognizing the incredible devastation with the power of God, which brings into focus the puniness of man. One of the things that uh, we see in these men in their boat is that he... That in verse 39, uh, well, in verse 38, they woke him and they said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? They recognized that they were completely out of control. There was nothing they can do. Couldn't swim to shore. Probably couldn't hold on to their boat. Their boat was probably going to break up if Jesus hadn't said. Coming down the highway yesterday morning, we started getting texts and voice messages from a lot of different sources and uh, one of the early ones that we had in the morning was from my, my oldest sister, who lives in Covington, Virginia. She's married to the pastor of Covington Bible Church, Howard Merrill. And uh, one of the things that my brother-in-law really likes to do is to go up to Lake Moomaw. It's a, it's a 1970s Army Corps of Engineer project where they built a, a big dam up there and dammed up the river and have a huge lake up there in the high country above Covington, Virginia, down in the southern part of the state. It's one of the best-kept secrets of that part of the country down there. It's really a big lake and it's a beautiful spot. And for years, my brother-in-law has had boats and he's got a nice ski boat. And um, one of the things that my uh, sister and brother-in-law enjoy doing is just quick hook up the boat on an evening, put some food in a basket and head up to the lake. There's got really nice launches there. It's really quick and easy to get the boat in the water. It's only about a 30 minute drive and they will go up before dark and launch the boat and take their supper and go eat out on the lake and just spend some time there relaxing. I've told this story before, but my, uh, my brother-in-law, through the years, has named his boats Visitation. And that way, if somebody calls the house, my sister can just say, I'm sorry, the pastor's out on visitation. And, uh, and uh, have a clear conscience, I guess. Maybe he shouldn't. Well, Saturday, yesterday morning when my sister called, um, she said they had really had a frightening experience. And uh, they had called up a pastor friend in Covington, Billy Price, good guy, know him well. He and my brother-in-law, have. He, Billy pastors the Baptist church, my brother-in-law pastors the Bible church. And they've been partners in crime there in Covington for about 40 years together. So each of them, it's their only ministry. And now they're gray-headed old men, and I hope he listens to the tape. He won't. Brother-in-laws don't listen to brother-in-laws preach, let me tell you. And uh, so anyway... They took some food, they invited Billy Price and his wife, and they jumped in the truck, they took the boat up, it was a beautiful evening, and my sister said it was just incredible how quickly the storm came across the lake. And just the white caps, they, they were just very frightened, they got to the dock, they couldn't control the boat, the boat was being slammed into the piers, they grabbed a hold of the dock, it's a nice floating aluminum uh, commercial dock, it began to break apart, the cables were breaking, and they were very frightened, barely got out of the water in time, lightning and storm. Listen, if you've ever been in a moment like that, you realize how puny you are. That this, we are just in over our head right now. The power of God 
demonstrates to us our own puniness. But in our puniness, more than ever, the third lesson that we learn in the storm is the comforting presence of God. Do you know that? The presence of God is often best learned in the middle of the storm. We read Psalm 23 a few minutes ago, and I read it on purpose so that we wouldn't have to turn to it right now. Just to remind us that we have a good shepherd. We have a a shepherd and we are the sheep and he doesn't neglect his sheep. He takes care of his sheep. But did you catch in verse 4 of Psalm 23 where it says, and you know this verse well, you hear it at almost every funeral you've ever been to. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, for thou art with me, the King James says, as we know so well. For you are with me. Listen, as the power of God is demonstrated in the storm and the, and the puniness of mankind is magnified, what we recognize is the presence of God in the midst of the storm and his nearness brings a peace and a calm. Do you know that sense? Do you know what it is to experience the presence of God in the midst of the storm? Isaiah 41.10 is an interesting verse. I, I use it regularly, and I, I probably shouldn't give away my, my pastoral secrets. And when I minister and, and I encounter a situation that's very serious and I don't know what to do, I just read Psalm 41.10. So if I'm ministering to you in the future and I'm reading Psalm 41.10, then it's pretty bad. Because I don't know what else to do. <laughs> Psalm 41.10 is a verse that we should all memorize and underline. And I say that in jest. Fear not, for I am with you. Do you hear that? Fear not, for I am with you. What is it that takes away fear? It is the presence of God. The reality of the presence of God is to be a calming effect in the midst of the storm. Did the disciples in the boat really have anything to fear? Listen, if you've got Jesus in the boat, you're bulletproof. You're not going to capsize. It's like you can just sit there and relax and say, everything's fine. There's Jesus. He's not upset. I'm not upset. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isn't that a great verse? I have been with people who have been devastated. I remember one time many years ago in ministry, a man who had just been wiped out in a financial cataclysmic storm. A strong man, a man who had made much money, a man who had become broken to the degree that his wife called me and said, you need to go see him. He, I'm really worried about him. The kind of situation where you wonder if you're not going to find him out in the backyard hanging from a tree. We got down on our knees next to the couch and I read, listen, listen to me. Fear not, for I am with you, God says. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you believe that? That's where faith comes in, isn't it? And that's why it was kind of embarrassing for the disciples after Jesus back in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus wakes up with one word, like that was a problem. We have a problem here? I don't see a problem. All he said was, Shalom. No problem here. And then he turns to them 
And I think he probably had a funny look on us like, where's your faith? Where's your faith? Can I ask you a question? Don't you think that people who recognize the power of God and then get in perspective their own puniness so that they experience the, the presence of God, the power of God to the presence of God, who really believe that they have a shepherd, who really believe it's true that they shall not want because he is near, don't you think that they ought to act differently in the middle of a storm than pagans? Don't you think that our panic level ought to be way off the charts compared to people who do not have this kind of God who says, do not fear, because I'm with you. It ought to take away a little bit of the wine, shouldn't it? I'm talking about the verbal kind, not the liquid kind. It should take away a little bit of the attitude, shouldn't it? Don't be afraid because I am with you. Listen, the presence of God is a very comforting thing. And it's in the presence of God that we then find the peace of God, number four. And will you turn with me to another very, uh, next to Psalm 23, perhaps this Philippians 4 passage is equally as familiar, but as equally important to us. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Will you just glance there and make sure you can identify this passage in your Bible? Philippians chapter 4. Beginning with verse 4, look what it says. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's very difficult. It's easy to talk about. It's hard to do. Largely because we think we're in control, not Him. We like our agenda more than we like what He allows in our lives sometimes. And it is difficult. It's not to minimize the pain, the reality of the hurt that can happen in the storms of life. I mean... And in my pastoral care, I've often pondered somebody that's been married 45, 50, 55 years. And then they're holding the hand of their loved one as they slip off into eternity. How do you process that? It's very difficult. How do you rejoice in that? I don't think it's a call to have a party over the cataclysmic events of life. But I think it is, it is a call to have an inner sense of calmness and quiet and a joy in the Lord that He is in control and that one day He will make all things right. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now let your reasonableness be known to all. Gentleness is the word there. Stop being so angry. Stop being so upset. Stop throwing things. Let your gentleness, let your reasonableness, why? Because God is in control. And I will testify as well that the most mature, godly saints that I've been around are the ones that can sit there and just have a quiet in the midst of incredible, incredible difficulty. Say, well, we're just going to trust the Lord here. We're going to wait upon Him. We'll be reasonable. We'll have a gentle spirit. But do you see why? Let your gentleness or your reasonableness, the ESV says, be known to everyone. Here's why. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near, the NIV says. The Lord is near. ESV says the Lord is at hand. He's right here in our presence. It's kind of like if you're a little kid and the storm comes sweeping through and your dad comes running in finally, everything's okay because daddy's home. He'll take care of everything. He's near. Nearness of God. Now listen, I recognize that this is a spiritual reality. We do not have the the privilege of living in the three-year window where Jesus manifested His power physically. 
But the reality is the Christian life is a spiritual life that is to be lived by faith. And as much as the disciples wanted to believe, they evidently couldn't deal with the waves. They couldn't deal with the storm. And when Jesus looked at them and said, where's your faith? What's wrong with you? It's the same thing he asks us today at the spiritual level of our Christian life. Where's your faith? You say you believe it. You know that I'm here and I'm present. Where's your faith? It's a step of faith that ought to show what a challenge, what a challenge. As we move from recognizing the power of God, putting in perspective our own puniness, so that the presence of God becomes real to us as a comforting factor, we then can enter into the peace of God. Philippians 4 goes on to say, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Pray. Let your requests be made known to God. And then verse 7, And then the peace of God which passes all understanding. You know what that means? That means that a watching world makes no sense of a believer in the Lord Christ who doesn't panic in the midst of the storm. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. I'll tell you something. If you can figure it out, it's not faith. And so faith ends up being a very uncomfortable way to live because I can't figure it out. I just have to trust God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not in your own understandings. Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and I've just messed up the verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. If you could figure it out, it doesn't take faith. Quiet down. Stop yelling. You're not going to drown. Jesus might be asleep, but He's not going to let you drown. He's not asleep anymore either. That was a physical, human response. And so it is that we learn our fourth lesson in the midst of the storm, and that is the purpose of God, and we've already been emphasizing it, and it is to challenge their faith. Jesus had a teachable moment here. He knew it was going to happen. And so he tested their faith with the storm. He wanted to show them that they needed to improve. They needed to step up their faith to a whole other level. They needed to understand that he was not just a good teacher. He was not just a good prophet. He was God in the flesh. He was the creator of the universe. He was the savior of the world and they could trust him. It's been interesting to think about all the different storms that God uses in the Bible. God often used physical storms to accomplish his will in people's lives. God used a storm to turn the Apostle Paul to an entirely new direction in his ministry. Wonderful, interesting reading in Acts chapter 28 and 29, when when Paul gets shipped out as a prisoner with a load of prisoners in the middle of winter, in the fall of the year, when when they were supposed to stop sailing because the bad winds and the storms were going to start coming up. Acts 28 and 29 goes into great detail on this shipwreck that the Apostle Paul experienced. He told them not to go. They go anyway. Finally, they end up shipwrecking at Miletus and washing ashore. No one was killed. No one was lost. The Roman soldiers had their swords out of their sheath. You talk about a close call. And before the ship broke apart, because it had come up on the rocks at Miletus, They were going to slaughter all the prisoners on board. Paul was one of many prisoners under Roman guard on this barge, this this transport merchant ship. And they were going to 
kill all the, all the prisoners because the Roman soldiers didn't want to deal with the fallout of potentially losing a prisoner in the storm once the ship broke apart. They weren't sure they could guarantee where these prisoners would end up and some might get away and they were responsible with their own lives to see that the prisoners did not get away. So they had their swords out ready to kill them and Paul says, stop, don't do that. I've already told you no one's going to die, no one's going to leave. And under the Apostle Paul's leadership, he was the number one influencer, not the ship captain, not the centurion. The evangelist, the preacher, speaks up, calms everybody down. The ship breaks apart. They grab wood and stuff, float ashore. And that's when the story happens where they're on shore, frozen, freezing in the rain and the wind. They gather up sticks to light a fire, and out of the brush comes a viper. The village people and the island people have gathered around... And the viper bites and holds on to the Apostle Paul. He shakes it off into the fire. And all of the islanders are watching, waiting for him to puff up and die. He never does. He preaches the gospel and the church is established. God uses a storm to, to bring about a redirection in the Apostle Paul's life. Pretty miserable way to get there, but God does it pretty regularly. Let me ask you a question. As God brings these storms about, do you know that you end up places that you never thought you were going to end up? Paul ended up in Miletus. He wasn't going to Miletus. He was being shipped to Rome. The storm redirected him. Let's not miss opportunities in the storm to have contacts with people. I've often thought this. We have a long history in our family, and praise God for how well uh, Janet's doing with her kidney transplant. But let me tell you, I have spent a lot of days in hospitals. And you go down this hall and turn down this hall and go up this stairway and go down to this office and you're meeting with this person. Then you got to go meet with this person. Then you got to go get blood over here and then you got to wait over here. And everywhere you go, you're meeting what? You're meeting people you never met before in the midst of your storm. You get called out at 11 o'clock at night because your kid can't breathe and you're going to the ER and all of a sudden you're with a bunch of people you didn't plan to be with that night. Trees fall on your power lines and you're... And next thing you know, you're out in the backyard talking to people you never talked to all year long. Storms create a redirection. It happened in the Apostle Paul's life. God uses storms to bring correction. In Exodus chapter 9 and chapter 10, God used the storm to challenge the Pharaoh of Egypt, right? Used hail that they had never seen before, wind that blew in locusts. God used drought, God used fire, God used volcanoes. He often used storms to bring correction. Do you think that God to this day is not using storms to get the attention of kings around the world? They're not paying very close attention. I think it happened then and I think it's still happening today. I do think that one of the reasons we have so many storms is for God to get the attention of the king and for him to acknowledge that there is a power in the storm and he's puny. He uses it to create a new direction in our lives. He uses it to, to, to bring about correction in our lives. He uses it to his glory, for example, in the life of a saint like Job, whose the storm and the wind blew down his house, killed his children, killed all his sheep, ruined his crops, all so that he could God could put on display in the midst of the storm the devotion of one godly man. Job had no idea what God was doing behind the scenes. Job had no idea that Satan had had an audience before the throne of God and challenged God to allow him to to afflict Job. And as he afflicted Job, he expected Job to do what? To do what his wife called on him to do, curse God and die. And instead, Job got his face down on the ground and he said, 
The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we have Job's great testimony to this day. God used storms to create that arena. God has all kinds of purposes in the storm. It might be a redirection. It might be a correction. It might be a test of devotion. Certainly, it is a challenge to our faith, isn't it? Just like in the boat in Mark chapter 4. We see God's power. We see our own puniness. We are driven to the present to realize the presence of God in our lives like no other time than in the storm. Hopefully we're finding the peace of God there in the storm and recognizing the purpose of God. Three quick questions to conclude with. What's your fear level these days? Scale of one to ten. Ten being totally frozen with fear. One being calm as can be. What's your fear level? What's your fear level? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Don't you think it would be embarrassing to have been in that boat with the disciples? Don't you think they should be embarrassed? Jesus, we're going to die! You know, I, I really think at some level it's equally embarrassing for us to act like that in the midst of our circumstances that get out of control. He's just as much our shepherd as he was their shepherd that day. What's your fear level? Your fear level leads you to your faint level. What's your faint level? When do you give up? When do you just pass out and say, God can't deliver me from this? How do you know what God is doing in your life? There might be things going on that you have no idea. You might have to get to heaven to find out what God is doing. I often think of the Alka martyrs, and I've referenced them in the past. Five missionaries in 19, about 1956-57 that stood on the banks of the Curé River in Ecuador, South America, trying to reach an unreached tribal group. They had guns, they had strength. And they stood there with their hands up and they allowed their bodies to be filled with spears and arrows and they were killed. All five of these young men had little children and wives back at the base. And think of the devastation. Think of the horror. Think of the difficulty. Think of how hard it was for those kids to grow up without their dads. Only eternity is going to show the incredible wave for the gospel that was brought about by their death. A missionary revival that took place. Literally thousands of young people responded in the late 50s and early 60s to go to the mission field because of five men who went through an incredible storm. Five women and young families who had to live in the stormy years had no idea what God was doing. No idea. Wouldn't it be great to get to heaven and have some of this stuff sorted out? So what's your faith level today? Do you believe that God is in control? What's your faith level? Do you believe that God can use the storms in your life? You can identify those storms. Different ones have different kinds of storms going on all the time. And as I said earlier, if you don't have a storm, just hold on, because you will have. I was reminded of this just the other day, even for servants of the Lord. My good friend Greg Alderman, you know, he was here to speak for us family weekend his younger brother, Brent, I've known him for years. I've known him since he was in junior high. He's 42 years old. About a month ago, three, four weeks ago, he's still there. It hasn't been released yet that I know of unless it happened over the weekend at Winchester Medical Center. They took his right leg off below the knee. 
infection that they couldn't get in control, 42 years old. You think that's not a storm? That's a storm. Servant of the Lord, a pastor, a missionary. What's God doing? I don't know what God's doing, but I know this. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And the day, though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. His presence, his power, his peace, his program in my life. Amen? Do you know Jesus as your Savior today? Are you his child? Is your sin forgiven? If not, I challenge you this morning to call out to a holy God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to display his power by calming the storm, by going to the cross, by providing a righteousness that you don't have, that you need, and by faith you can receive. And then you become his child, and then these promises are true. Let's bow our heads, please. If you need to cry out to God right now in the privacy of your own heart and tell him that you acknowledge your inadequacy, your sinfulness, and you need the righteousness of Christ. Why don't you do that? Become his child today. Father, I admit my sinfulness. Father, I admit that I am inadequate and unworthy to stand in your presence. Thank you for Jesus Christ who took my sin to the cross, who took my blame and my dirt, gave me his righteousness. And by faith, I believe this to be true and that you raised him from the dead. Save me. If that's your cry, just talk to the Lord. For those who are in storms right now, really a little bit of spoiled meat in the freezer is not that big of a deal. It's it's frustrating and it's a pain. But in the grand scheme of things, this storm isn't all that bad. Are you trusting God today, Christian? Are you in Are you being kind of an embarrassment, embarrassing yourself without even realizing it by crying out and wailing when Jesus is right there with a word? I know that it can be very painful, these storms. I know that it can be very puzzling. I know that it's very difficult sometimes to process these storms of our lives. Will you ask God to give you a strength today and get rid of your fear factor? Up your faith factor. And don't grow weary so that you don't faint in the midst of the storm. Father, accomplish your purposes. Strengthen us. We need it. We are weak people. It is so easy for us to get our eyes off of you and on the water, on the storm, on the troubles around us. Would you please help us to just be quiet, to be still, to recognize that you are near and to wait upon you to rescue us from the storm. We know, Lord, that the ultimate rescue comes when you deliver us into your presence. And what a great day that will be. Give us the faith to hold on to these promises, I pray. Encourage and strengthen those who are struggling right now, those who might not even be here today among our congregation and our community who have really been impacted in difficult ways. Would you please encourage and strengthen, and as only you can do, uh, bring about good out of tragedy and difficulty. Help us to go in faith, Lord, and to grow in grace, to be the loving body you want us to be. In Jesus' name.